I want to say hi to all of you joining us now online. My name is Richard. I am one of the pastors at MCBC. <clears throat> and if you're joining us for the first time this week, we've been studying the greatest talk in history, the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> we learned last week uh, about a, a particularly dangerous human condition, about approval addiction. Be sure and go online and catch up if you didn't have a chance to hear it. A lot of us are tempted to think that who we are is something like the sum total of who everybody else thinks we are. Jesus invites us to step out of that kind of slavery, out of bondage to how other people think about us. And instead, he invites us to be rooted and grounded in the love of our Heavenly Father. Last week, he offered for us a little-known spiritual practice to help us. And if you're with us, you remember that was the practice of secrecy. Secrecy is when we abstain from doing things just to be known for the things that we've done. In secrecy, I get to hand over the PR department of my life to God, and I refrain from trying to make people go, wow, way to go, Richard. And I realize that I can survive without that. This week, we look at how Jesus applies secrecy to the area of giving. So here's what Jesus says. If you have your Bibles, Turn with me in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 6, and we're going to read that section from verses 2 through 4. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. For truly, I tell you, they've received their full reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret, and then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. There's this long-standing argument about whether Jesus used humor or not. I happen to think that he did. I happen to think that he used it a lot. But the reason that humor isn't a lot more obvious to us is because often it's very culture-bound. It's even generation-bound. Maybe you've noticed that that movies that were supposed to have been funny 50 years ago, you watch them and they're just not that funny now. The Bible itself is 2,000 years old. How many 2,000-year-old manuscripts can you think of that are still funny? But you have this section here. In Matthew 6, verses 2 to 4, Jesus is describing religious hypocrisy. It's a humorous picture. You could even say it's sarcastic. Imagine what he's, what he's suggesting here. Imagine you're at church, it's offering time, and somebody pulls out their trumpet, and they start to blow a reveille just before they put their money into the collection box. That would have been, for the Jesus crowd, a laugh-out-loud illustration what he's getting at. Of course, nobody back then actually blew a trumpet. But maybe you can sort of sympathize with what he's getting at. I've had times where I might have done something that seemed generous, and then I might have found a way to sneak it into conversation later on with other people so that they would know how generous I am. But I'd have to be really cunning about it because I want it to seem like impressing them was the farthest thing from my mind. Jesus says about this kind of behavior, he says, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. If you do something to impress somebody, 
Your reward is given to you. You got to impress somebody and you'll get that little burst of wow. And you'll be just a little bit more addicted and it'll be even harder to avoid doing the same thing next time. In short, it it makes you a slave. But Jesus goes on. He says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, here you have another probably intentionally humorous illustration for an ancient crowd. And there's this deep, profound idea behind it. When we do something, when we do it and and it becomes habitual in us, when it's so embodied in us that we do it without thinking about it, we say that behavior has become second nature. Think of a great illustration going back to the early days, the, the kindergarten days of your life, when you're trying to learn how to tie your shoes. Initially, you had to concentrate really hard. And the first time you did it, you were so proud. Look at me, mom, look at me, dad. I tied my shoe. You want to blow a trumpet. Now you can probably lean down and tie your shoe and you don't give it a second thought. It's, it's second nature. But here's a funny thing. If I were to ask you to describe the process, how is it that you tie your shoe and, and you try to describe it? Well, think of the words. I mean, I, I cross the ends. I, I put the right end under the left. I make a little loop with the right circle. I pull it through the left and, and then I kind of tighten it up. Now, here's a real challenge. If you're wearing your shoes right now, lean down, untie them and try and tie them up. Only this time, make your left hand do what your right hand normally does. It's really hard. I mean, my left hand literally doesn't know what my right hand was doing. Jesus is making a profound statement about human nature, and particularly about the human condition when we begin to live in the kingdom of God. Let your generosity become just as habitual, just as second nature as tying your shoes. Let it become such a habit that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Now, initially, when you start to do this, it's going to feel heroic. You'll want to blow a trumpet. The first time you give a gift that feels really generous or or you give a, a sacrificial amount of time, it feels heroic. Say, Karina, look, I emptied the dishwasher. I did it without being asked. Blow the trumpets. (laughs) But eventually, you'll find that you can be generous without ever giving second thought to how good that might be. And you're free to think about more interesting things. You don't have to blow the trumpet all the time. You know, one of the signs of spiritual maturity is the thoughts that just don't occur to us anymore, like reward-seeking. Jesus has a particular way of talking about this. In Matthew 6 and verse 4, he says, Then your father, who sees the things that are done in secret, will reward you. And the idea, idea again, if you were with us last week, is not that, well, you were going to get this really big mansion in heaven for being generous, but somebody found out, so now God is going to downsize you. No, the idea is this, that as you give, that as you become a truly generous person, someone who's not merely trying to impress people, someone who actually wants to partner with God and follow Jesus, as you do that, you're entering into this new reality, into the kingdom of God, and it's really good. And the reward, the reward is the person that you become. 
The reward is the life that you lead, the joy that you experience. The reward is the faith that you build and the difference that you make. I kind of like the way Dr. Martin Luther King put it. King said, keep feeling that need for being first, but I want you to be first in love. I want you to be first in moral excellence, and I want you to be first in generosity. The Bible is so full of the rewards of being generous. It's almost staggering when you, when you begin to do a little study of it. So I want to spend a little bit of time as we map out the rest of the message, just getting clear about the rewards of generosity. And if you have your notes, uh, we email out every week uh, a link to the sermon and then also the notes for the sermon. And if you didn't get those, just make sure you you shoot us a quick email back. and We'll make sure that you get those. But you, if you have your notes You might want to follow along. But by the end of this, I hope that we find ourselves saying, you know what? The market may be down. The financial world may be reeling. There may be record numbers of people unemployed. But but in spite of all of that, actually, actually, you know, because of all of that, I want to honor God with my finances. And this year, 2020, is going to be a turning point in my life. In fact, I want 2020 to be the most generous year I've ever had. And so here we go. The rewards of generosity. Here's the first one. Blessing. Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, often we turn that little word blessing into a kind of religious cliche. But as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, really what it's about is the good life. When you say, God bless you, what you're really saying is, I want God's very best for you. I want the good life for you. And the idea here is that we think somehow getting stuff is the path to the good life. Because when we get something, when we get something shiny and new, we receive this little burst of pleasure. But that burst always wears off. And over the long call, over the long haul, we know this. Study after study after study have shown this that givers are happier, more joyful people than those who spend their life only trying to accumulate. So that's the first reward. You experience more blessing. It's it's an intrinsic blessing, meaning it happens in here, not in the amount of stuff that you're able to store in your garage or in your basement. But here's the second one. More relational connection. More relational connection. We live in this society that increasingly is financially rich, but relationally we struggle. There's a poverty there. I want you to look with me at what Paul says to givers in the early church about the way that people who received their generosity reacted. He says, 2 Corinthians 9, in their prayers for you, in their hearts, they go out to you. Why? Because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. People who are generous with their time who are generous with their money, they end up entering into these new relationships. They're connecting with, they're caring about people. But we know the opposite is also true. If you're stingy with your time and your money, you'll find that people will be stingy with their hearts. They won't gravitate to you. If you're generous with your money and your time and your affection, people's hearts naturally go out to you. There's a magnetism there. And the result is more relational connection. Here's a third sign of 
of the work of generosity in your life and of its benefits. It's, it's a kind of freedom. We spent a lot of time over the past few weeks talking about freedom. When I focus on my life, my own little life and, and my own petty desires, I, I get twisted up inside. There's this interesting phrase. It's used a couple of times. You find it in the Psalms. You find it in Psalm 22 when it says, deliver my precious life from the power of the dogs. Hmm. I wonder, that phrase, my precious, does it ring any bells? What if you say it this way? My precious. <laughs> you remember You remember the Lord of the Rings? Remember the character's name, Gollum? That word Gollum actually comes from a Hebrew word, a word found in the Bible, found in Psalm 139. The word Gollum describes an unformed or a malformed body. And it was used in the Middle Ages. Gollum actually became a kind of character in Jewish folklore. A Gollum was grudging and resentful and soulless. A Gollum was a slave. That's why Tolkien chose the name Gollum. And the ring in his story, the ring is what one professor in a marvelous phrase called a psychic amplifier. It amplifies, it takes your desire and it turns it into an obsession until at last it becomes an idol. And then we become its slaves. That's what happens when when generosity gets flipped on its back. See, the rule of life in the kingdom is this, Matthew 10, 8, freely you have received, freely give. What in the world do I have that God didn't give to me? My body, my mind, my food, my clothes. Generosity liberates us from slavery to things so that we can give with the kind of freedom that we have received. Here's a fourth marker of generosity at work in our lives. It's the gift of joy. Joy. Here's the scripture reference told about this great story of giving in the Old Testament and 1 Chronicles. The people rejoiced over the offerings, for they gave wholeheartedly to the Lord, and King David was filled with joy. I'll tell you how deeply God has wired you for generosity. When you're generous with your money or with your time in serving, it actually triggers, we know this from studies, it triggers the release of of oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin and vasopressin, all these endorphins, prolactin. It's sometimes called the helper's high. On the opposite side of things, stingy people secrete cortisol which is the stress hormone. I mean, it's kind of amazing when you think about it, that God has actually wired your physical body so that you cannot give without getting a little jolt of joy. Here's a fifth thought, and it has to do with the delight of God. I have in my office a little sign, a famous quote from Eric Liddell that says, when I run, I I feel God's pleasure. Translate into the language of generosity, generous people experience the delight of God. This is an amazing verse. Proverbs 19 says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. According to Forbes magazine, I looked it up this week, the current richest guy in the world is Jeff Bezos, Amazon. And if anything, 
He's probably doing another lap around everybody else because Amazon is the one business that's going gangbusters right now. He nets out at about $113 billion. I want you to imagine you're sitting there at church, and there is Jeff Bezos sitting right next to you, and it's offering time. And he leans over and says, you know what? I got nothing. Could, could you spot me at 20? And you'd probably figure that he's good for it. Now, here's a really important piece of information. It's a piece that, that maybe your financial planner didn't tell you. One day you die. One day you die. No matter what happens, no matter how carefully you planned and saved, you're going to die. Why would you not give the things that you can never keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. Can you imagine standing in front of God one day whose incredible supremacy and wealth and abundance makes Bezos look like a miser? You're going to stand in front of God one day and he'll say, let's see, I've got a bunch of IOUs here. Let's settle up. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them and they will experience God's delight. Here's a, here's a sixth thought. Your generosity is a blessing, and it's a blessing that goes on to the next generation. This is from Psalm 37. It says of the righteous that they are always generous. They lend freely, and their children will be a blessing. Now, it's fascinating. The text doesn't say their children will be blessed. They get a great inheritance. They can go party for their whole life. No, it says their children will be a blessing. If you ever want to see what a a grasping, clutching spirit does to the next generation, just read through a little Shakespeare play called King Lear. See, selfish parents tend to raise selfish children. Generous parents tend to raise generous children. It's a blessing that goes on to the next generation. Here's thought number seven. There's an amazing story that you get in the Bible. It comes uh, one day when Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being, being, being gathered, and the crowd was putting their money into the temple treasury, and many rich people threw in large amounts. But the Bible says a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, the equivalent of only a few cents. And calling his disciples to them, Jesus said, truly, I tell you this, this poor widow has put more money into the treasury than all the others. It's a fascinating story. I mean, it's just fascinating on so many levels. I mean, first you have this this image of, of Jesus who's just standing there watching people as they put their offerings into the temple treasury. It seems kind of nosy. And maybe people say, hey, Jesus, why don't you mind your own business? What about that whole giving in secret thing? But Jesus seems to have this strange idea that people's giving is his business, that what people do with the resources that come from God is actually God's business. And here's the point of the story. The widow wasn't giving to impress. The widow wasn't hiring out the services of the trumpet guy, the widow was betting on God. And Jesus said, this poor widow put in more. And he wasn't just being poetic, and he wasn't exaggerating. 
I think what he's getting at here is in the spiritual dimension of your existence, your intentions, your choices, your character, all those things that are unseen but real. Remember that question, what is reality? The first great great question of life. And the answer Jesus gives that that what is most real is God and his kingdom, these unseen things. The widow's mite becomes the most famous gift in history. I mean, that that widow literally inspired the generosity of hundreds of millions of people all around the planet. She had no idea she was going to be doing that, but she literally gave more, literally. No matter what your income is, don't ever believe your gift doesn't count. When you give, God sees the heart. God can take two fish and five loaves and feed a multitude. God is, God is the ultimate multiplier. And then here's, uh, here's the last thought for today. When you think about giving in the kingdom of God, I want you to think about taking on a new financial planner. When you step into the realm of generosity, you're, you're aligning yourself with an unseen jet stream in the universe. Jesus, Jesus put it like this. He said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This reality of God's involvement in your financial life is, is so powerful. But it's also the place where I just want to pause and reiterate something that you do not give so that you can get more in return. Giving is not the bank card to some celestial ATM. My, my family, they grew up in this little Baptist church in rural Ontario. Whenever somebody put $100 in the offering plate, the pastor got so excited. He said, whoever put this in, come on up to the front. You can pick three hymns. So on one particular Sunday, this shy elderly woman made her way to the front, and she just beamed at the congregation. She said, she said I'll pick him and him and him. <laughs> of course, it didn't actually happen. Made-up story. Probably the very first made-up story ever used in a pastor's sermon. But, but here's the point. Giving isn't done because we expect external rewards, more wealth, more reputation, trophy spouses. But I want to tell you this, based on Scripture, based on the lives of thousands of people, based on what Karina and I have experienced in our own lives, you will never outgive God. It's true with your time. If you're not volunteering, if you're not serving, I want to tell you, get generous with your time. And see if God doesn't multiply your energy and your time in ways that builds your faith. It's true with your money. You know, the beginning level of giving for Israel was something called the tithe, where people would would honor God. They would set aside the first 10% of their income. It was agricultural income, and so it was called the first fruits, the first part of the harvest. People have a hard time trusting God with a lot of things, and that includes their money. So here's what God said. He said in Malachi 3 and verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there can be food in my house. You can test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it all. 
I used to be pretty good at math, calculus and trigonometry and algebra. But the kingdom of God requires new math. The old math in our world says if I have $100 and I give away 10 I have 90 left. In other words, the more I give, the less I have. In the kingdom of God, the foundation of reality, when you're generous, God has a way of entering the equation so that 90% with God is so much more than 100% without him. And this is the only arena in which God actually says, you can test me in this. You can test me. So for all of us, gathered this way online, practically speaking, how do we get started? If it's clear that God is at work in your financial life, then I'm going to invite you to take a step in giving. Maybe for some of you, it's tithing. If that's you, we're going to celebrate. We're going to send you a beautiful set of Ginsu steak knives. Actually, no, that's a joke. No Ginsu steak knives coming this week. But I just want to encourage you. If you've never taken that step towards becoming a regular giver to God, to God's work, to God's people, to people in need, don't miss the blessing of that. A lot of people find it's really helpful to give online, especially these days. And I'll tell you why. Most of us intend to be generous people. We don't want to be misers. We intend to be givers. But does anybody remember where the, the road paved to good intentions leads? Not a good place. A pastor named Andy, Andy Stanley put it this way, automation trumps determination. If I woke up every morning in a gym, I'd probably work out more. If I lived in a health food store, I'd probably eat better. The Bible talks about this first fruits principle. And the idea is that we're to give to God right off the top. But it's really easy to forget and get distracted by other activities until some bill comes in and we get worried. And then we get to the end of the month and we feel like there's nothing left. Technology can be a gift from God because it can translate good intentions into consistent action. Now, maybe it's not for everybody. Maybe you prefer to give something physical, a a check in an envelope, a bag of groceries at the door, whatever it is. By all means, use whatever methods help you the most. But we do recognize how many ways technology has been a great gift from God to us during these times. Trusting God with your finances. Leading a generous life. Discovering that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Having the discipline to become a consistent, regular giver. Getting real about this, about being generous and not being so much of a consumer. Walking hand in hand with Jesus through this life in a way that just overflows with generosity. It's the biggest no-brainer in the history of the world. And in the end, that's the reward of generosity. So I'm going to suggest three questions. They come in the form of a challenge. I want to leave them with all of us for this coming week. If you have your notes, you might want to write these down. If you're not taking notes, now's the time to start. Three questions to take into this coming week. On your to-do list, what is it that includes helping others? It's the first one. On your to-do list, what includes helping others? Here's the second. This month, 
what part of my personal income is designated for others? What part of my personal income honors God and helps others? And here's the third one, in prayer. In prayer, what inclusions do I have beyond just praying for my own family, my own friends, my own church? What will you do? What will you give? How will you pray? Let me pray for us all now. Gracious God, we know that everything we have comes from you. You fill us with good things. Our hearts and lives, they overflow with your abundance. Stir up generosity in the lives of your people, we pray. Use those gifts that you've given to us to to lead others and feed others because we know how much we've been given. To serve others because we know how much we have been served and to bless others because we're a blessed people. Lord, we want to give our best. Not spend the rest of our lives striving for things that we can never keep that will not last. Jesus, would you walk with us through the twists and turns of life so that when we face our own end and look back on our own life, we won't find ourselves realizing too late that in gaining the world, we lost life itself. Lord, we know we are not our own. We belong to you, and we honor you with our lives and with our loves. Amen.